Okay, okay, peace, peace. Peace. How are you? Um oh, you're here. <laughs> I'm glad I'm I am I'm cool, cooling down, and um I'm glad you're here. So <clears throat> let me go with the formal introduction. Um hi, this is Fresh of my Fresh Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Metcalf, and um I have a very esteemed guest on the show. Before I even go further into saying anything about my guests. Y'all know I'm a big MF Doom fan. Like, knowing this guy's whole steez, his whole catalog and stuff, and been conversing, you know, just living that in that hip-hop world of, like, delving into his lyrics and find out that he's not just mouthing off freestyling about some crazy space stuff he's actually telling a story like i realized this on the mad villain album and um i have a great human being that actually had a hand in putting that album together um also another thing i found out about doing that he deliberately puts one joint on his albums that features a woman, whether it be a singer or an MC. Yeah, you could you if you go back through his albums, you'll you'll peep it out. I ain't gonna even tell you which ones. But I like to introduce finally. I have a on podcast, Wallasia. Well thank you so much for having me on today to talk about hip-hop and music and Zoom and a little bit about my career. I'm very honored to be a guest. Oh, yes. We're going we to talk all about you. We ain't, I ain't going to get all into your business. We got like a little itinerary for the... First of all, I'm glad yeah. under yeah. the uh, circumstances that you're going under, and, you know, for, for folks who don't know, like, you've really been fighting for your life out here. Yeah, I've been having some some crazy health um, situations going on, and I've been sick for like almost eight years without knowing what was wrong. And just recently, I found out that I do have um, something called SJS, Stephen Johnson Syndrome, which also my mother had since the 1980s. Um, and, you know, I'm living with it one day at a time. I'm just trying to you know, be used to being in pain a lot and just kind of living a different, um, a different life where, you know, I'm rarely, um, comfortable <laughs> or oh. rarely out of pain, but you know, it's, um, for the most part, 85% of people who have it, um, they have it forever and they have clusters of symptoms, but they don't, uh, necessarily, die or pass away from it um my mother's still with us after all these years of having it so you know it's just something to deal with something in life you know well that's a relief because i was sitting on i was sitting over here thinking like you know i would be in reading your tweets and stuff and you would mention that and i was feeling like it was a dire situation and it's like what can i do and then that's when i started i really started plugging in with you uh with like various the various projects that you have going that that's like sort of music related one was uh uh the nonprofit uh you was getting equipment together 
young ladies and showing them how to make beats and everything? Yeah, that's something that I'm still working on. And just, you know, I kind of do it off the radar, um, even with my medical situation and having medical debt and all that kind of stuff. When I do get a little something extra, um, there are a couple of uh, women who produce out there. um, And I kind of just slide them some bread whenever I can or upgrade their equipment if I can. Or uh, I helped out one friend's daughter who's pretty young. She's about, probably now she's nine or 10, but at that time she was about seven maybe. And I just, you know, sent some gently used things that I had and gave her some information about like koala and different ones online that she could use to start to produce and make beads and sent her an iPad and told her, you know, she could start with GarageBand and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I just kind of don't, I don't really necessarily publicize it, but if I ever have anything extra, I usually give it to one of those, to the youth who are just wanting to learn and they don't really have nothing to start with or to a couple of my sister out there who are already producing and already making beats and they're already out there. But, you know, this life is, is rough for a lot of people right now. And so, you know, financially it's hard for the men folks. So you have to think for us, even in hip hop, even whatever, you know, whatever the popularity of the record or whatever the case may be, if it's a woman doing the work as the producer or behind the scenes or whatever is the case, you got to remember that she's not getting compensated the same as she would be if she was a man. Right. Exactly. Not, you know, not um, exactly what the, how, how can I say it? What the name is worth? Like, like how you said, if your name is on the marquee on the outside, we looking at it as fans thinking like, yeah, if it's a big record, then you getting all the bread off of that. But we find out later that's not the case. It makes me want to jump into that, into this, uh, this stone store mad villain, but not yet. Go ahead. <laughs> you, can use my, you can use my, uh, you could use my podcast as an example of, um, you know, just not exactly publicizing it, but you know, I have people out here who, uh, who listen to the podcast, uh, loyally and may not know of your name and mm-hmm. everything. And, this would be a way to uh, plug people into the, to that to that nonprofit you were just speaking of. Well, I'm not actually registered as a nonprofit yet. I just kind of do it as an ad hoc situation, but it's definitely something that I'm working on. And I've worked for a couple nonprofit organizations out here in Oakland and the Bay Area. They have nothing to do with music, but I did take those jobs. So I could learn more about the infrastructure of setting up a nonprofit organization here in California. And I have a couple of elders um, that I'm close to who already do have nonprofits here. And the way it works is that you have to work under one of them for a year, kind of attached to their um, nonprofit registration. And then after that, you can become one on your own. So I'm probably a couple years out from actually having a true organization, but I have worked fundraising for one called, um, it's, uh, they're located in San Francisco 
And basically it's called Wham or Woman's Audio Mission. So they have a big recording studio, a label, a sound stage. They throw events. They do a lot of things. Um, and I've never met none of them and I've never been to their events, but they provide scholarships and recording equipment and also job opportunities. For example, if there's a like an engineering position open at their studio, they open it first for women. And then if there is no qualified uh, woman that could take the job, then after that, they'll open it up to males to, to possibly give them the job if they're qualified. So I've done a lot of fundraising for them. And there's also an organization that I've, a couple organizations that I've fundraised for where I also haven't worked directly with them. Um, and one is Black Girls Code, and they send really young uh, preteens and teenage young Black women and girls um, to STEM schools and give them training in coding. Um, and that's not really related to music, but I just figure, um, like when I was working for Yelp, we had a little discrepancy on my way out of there. And because of some bad things that they did, I was in a position to kind of force them to make a large donation. So I had them to, uh -huh. to give $12,000 to Black Girls Code because I figured, you know, that when am I going to get a chance for how this big organization put all this money? And it probably helped a lot of young ladies um, get their education and get their books and get their, um, their schooling paid for and covered and all that stuff. So I wanted to support them and support that, especially with some of the things that are happening with, um, AI within the music industry. And we don't really know what the future of that is going to hold, but everything is so right. digital nowadays that, you know, that would be the smart money is put your daughter in one of those programs um, for coding and engineering and STEM for her actual schooling. And then for fun for after school and for uh, extracurricular activity for her that for her to be able to make, um, make productions and make beats, whether she's self-taught at home or goes through one of these um, different programs that there are out there. And there's there are some, and I want to kind of model what I want to do after those, basically. That's all. All that's novel and terrific, and I I encourage you to keep that going right there. Um, yeah, let's get because like you know you rarely hear about that type of thing being push like from one end of the hip-hop spectrum to the other you know there was a time in hip-hop to where it was pushed that you that you went to school and and get the degree and start something like that with you know but being ahead of the curve is is a is a real thing that we we try to do i actually uh have a uh, have a partner who owns an artillery down here and one of the one of the things that he specializes in is uh, augmented reality mm. animation ai and all that and also try to you know teach the uh children art classes and get into coding and stuff like that because you know that's these are the days and times that we're living in now um let's get into your professional career um this hits me in the heart of something special because uh you have published work out there uh as far as back as i know i caught on to you like maybe 97 98 uh with stretch magazine 
Yes, I was the only West Coast editor of Stress, and um, I was able to do three issues or maybe four issues with them. And then unfortunately, you know, they couldn't afford to keep publishing because the ad money that kept Stress going was going to other publications like Double XL and The Source. The Source, and, yeah. Yeah, because those publications were really to kind of willing to do like almost like payola or pay to play like you master p could place an ad and stress <laughs> master p could his label or priority or whoever was distributing his music they, no. they could pay and have an advertisement in stress magazine but we were never gonna do no article about him and that's different from all the other magazines where it was the opposite. If he yeah. paid for an ad, they probably would give a feature or maybe even a cover story. And that's just the way that it worked. So, you know, Stress wasn't really able to keep going and Ket, um, Alain Mariduena, the publisher, yeah, uh, you know, he was a graffiti writer. Yeah, graffiti, and so, yeah. Yeah, and that was part of it too, was that Stress was really like a very revolutionary magazine and it was a lot about graffiti and, um, you know, uprising movements from all over the world and, Everybody who ran it was an immigrant. Virgilio Bravo, uh, my other, he was the managing editor. And him and Ket were very revolutionary. And Ket was involved, you know, a lot heavily in the graffiti scene, which is a, you know, a counterculture movement. There really yeah. is no, no way to commodify graffiti or to have, at that time, there weren't as many of these companies like Montana, um, who now have a lot of crink, K-R-I-N-K, like if they're an ink and graffiti pen company. Oh, Nowadays, yeah. you can get advertisement money from those companies. But back in those days, it wasn't really anything like that. It was so unheard it was, of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah, it, it was very hard for him to get to the rap money because he really wasn't giving, he wasn't giving that play. You know, we had a Raekwon cover. I worked on a Ghostface cover. Um I I remember those covers vividly. Yeah. And so, you know, those yeah. were like, maybe, maybe there was that. Ad attached to it, maybe not, you know, at stress, we just, it was called New York's illest magazine. And so we just, it put, really was too. Yeah. We put <laughs> what was ill in the magazine. Like one of the best features that I ever got to write was about a woman called Debbie Goldsberry. And she was a very early marijuana advocate. And the stuff that she was talking in that interview was so 20 years ahead of schedule and so on point and so important and interesting, especially for people at that time, you know, smoking or even having some trees was highly illegal everywhere you went. And so, you know, the information that she provided in that interview and that we were able to publish in stress, no rap magazine or any other really kind of, except for maybe high times would have published even that information that she gave because it would have been considered, you know, very um, revolutionary and very countercultural. And that's the one that sticks out to me. It wasn't a rapper or a hip hop artist or anybody really from the scene. It was just that, you know, the stuff that she was teaching was so just ahead of the times and so important for people who did want to smoke or have their trees with them in their vehicle or at their job or whatever the case was. You know, she really laid it down and gave a lot of inside information about how to navigate that back in the days when it was fully illegal everywhere. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't no talk about uh, legalizing mm -hmm. marijuana back then. And I believe I have that. That came after that issue came after the uh, Foxy Brown cover, I believe. The whole issue about, yeah, marijuana legalization. I think that interview. 
uh, was in that issue. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it might have been in the Ghostface issue. Maybe. I could say, you, you know what? That was. But you okay. have that probably. The Foxy Brown issue was my first issue. So, you know, when okay. like, when stuff like that hits the stands, it was like mm-hmm. even back then you had to grab the issue because you, you wasn't sure you, you wasn't sure you was going to see that again. And then I'm in Mobile, Alabama looking at stress scene, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, that's the other part of why it was hard because, you know, the volume was lower of, of the number of issues that were able to be printed. And so it didn't necessarily get to every um, nook and cranny of the United States or of the world like some of those other magazines did. And so that was kind of messed up, too, because, you know, those in those there were so many people in so many areas around the country and even around the world where they probably would have been really um, hard pressed to be able to even find an issue of stress. So that was amazing that you were even able to get it. And Ket will be happy if he's able to listen to this episode. He'll be happy to know that that the magazine and publication was reaching down there. I want to say I did issues 25, 26, 27. And then I believe we were starting on a 28. Yeah. And then uh, that's uh, when we did not. Exhibit was supposed to be on the cover. I think we had to fold, but then the interesting thing about folding was that I was working for Fox Kids and Fox Family, which at the time was owned by Haim Saban, and then he was selling it, in the process of selling it to Disney. But when I was there, it was still Fox. And I worked in on-air promotions, and I worked for the vice president of that whole department and that whole floor. He was a very powerful person at the company and he knew what I was doing Uh and you know what was so crazy he was a gay white man and he (laughs) was the last person that I would have thought would be so supportive but he loved it that I was using company resources to do interviews and articles and print things out and do all my writing and my editing. And he would walk by and he would be like, mm-hmm, yep. He would be like, oh, you're writing one of those articles. Again. You go, girl. You go, girl. And he would be proud. And he would lay money, cash money on me secretly aside from my paycheck. And he even paid for a trip for me to go take time off work and off his desk and go to Georgia to do some different shows and see some of my people from the solar panel and um, hang out with um, G Supreme and with doom. And it was really kind of cool that he did that because um, he basically like funded my trip and he kind of lightweight funded some of the stuff that was happening at stress because at that time I still had to take print photographs and have them developed and have them sent to New York for them to be printed in the magazine. If I was shooting the, photos as well as doing the article and it was the same because you know this is the really kind of pre the digital era I was doing a couple things freelance for platform.net but it was the same token I would have to take pictures pay for them to be developed pay to ship them somewhere because of course I didn't have a scanner and you know that but that's what I would do at Fox was if there was any way if I could use their FedEx or if I could use their color printer or anything I could figure out to do with their uh, resources and equipment and money and time that's how I did my freelance journalism and that's how I got known and that's how I got put on at stress and quickly became the West Coast editor and then Ket 
MV and Matt Doyle, who was the head of photography for Stress, they were hired on by Mark Echo and this dude named Seth Gersberg, who was like the money guy behind Echo Unlimited. Right. They hired all of us to make Complex. And they brought me, literally, I was working at Fox and Ket and V reached me and they were like, can you move to New York to help us start this new magazine? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, can you move here tomorrow? <laughs> and so I had to quit my job and tell the man what was happening. And he was sad to lose me, but he was happy for me because he saw me build up um, my dream and turn it into something real and then be offered a paid position and in New York in media. And he was actually happy for me and proud of me. And he even gave me some money on, on the way out. And I literally gave not even an hour's notice and I packed my things and moved to New York. Okay, okay. So slow 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 things down for me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um the last the last four issues of stress and then you know you get the news they're gonna have to stop publication. They gotta cancel the whole thing and you working where you working at and then um, I recall stress being one of those magazines that had the uh that was at first that was the only ones that was doing the uh the uh, Echo Unlimited ads in there, like real full page, because they was getting like maybe quarter pages, half pages in the source, and and vibe. Um, and me on that move right there, because I know you you just said it. You just said that um, you know you packing your bags on, and the other got that got the gig over at uh Complex. Well, I think that Mark Echo had been um collecting graffiti art and graffiti adjacent art and street art for a while. And so he knew Kat. Kat was very big in the art world of his own right. And he was putting together a lot of gallery shows and selling a lot of art and things like that. And Mark Echo himself, you know, he used to um, airbrush shirts and that's kind of how he got his start with Echo. And I wouldn't necessarily call him a graffiti artist, but. And, right, you know, right, right, right. Cause it was, I, I recall. Cause I be deep off in it, and I read some of the matter of fact, stress interviews about. I think it was like it was a clothing issue. I think the guy from Con Art was in mm-hmm. there. It was like, yeah, yeah. The guy from Con Art was like in there, and he was calling like you know Mark Mark Echo this this big biter, and you know that what you just said kind of like confirmed that he wasn't mm-hmm. really a graffiti artist, but mm-hmm. he got on with what he got on with. Yeah, he was, you know, he was graffiti adjacent, let's say, but he was also smart because he knew when he was getting ready to start um, a publication about culture, not just music and rap, but actually a magazine about hip hop culture. You know, he knew where to come to. He knew who to pay and who to hire on. And he knew he knew exactly what time it was. And he was able to, um, you know, get the Echo Unlimited people to put some resources up and then also once we all got there we all figured out other ways to supplement it like Kat was basically building an art collection for Mark Echo and so he was like paying Kat maybe a month I don't know how it worked financially but paying him like maybe a monthly fee or maybe paying him per piece or something for Kat to find things and buy them um, and get them, you know, all shipped and ready and put together so that Mark could have this like amazing um, 
collection of real graffiti art because Ket was well connected. Um, and Ket in his own right is a, a very important graffiti artist and have been for a very, uh, very long time. So when I got there, um, Echo had never had e-commerce. And so they wanted to build a site and they were kind of in progress on it. But what they didn't have was um, descriptions of all the products and everything. So I was getting paid for complex. I had a salary, you know, it wasn't much, but it was, it was something. And I was yeah. living uh, with my brother in Brooklyn. So at first I wasn't having to pay rent and Kat was driving us to and from uh, bumfuck uh, New Jersey. I don't even remember the name of that little <laughs> so far, so far away. And we had this long drive in both directions before they moved the offices to the city, which took some time because we had to build this from nothing. So yeah. I negotiated, you know, with the people at Echo that I would stay and work extra hours away from complex and write all the descriptions. So the very first website that Echo ever had, and it was the Marvel capsule, actually, that was one of the things that they launched, um, which, you know, I took some of it home and Doom made that Avengers hoodie, which he stole from me famous <laughs> because it was in all those photo shoots um, that Dev Horowitz from Nature Sounds took for my favorite ladies and all those um, projects he's wearing. You know, he's in front of his um, SP and smoking a blunt in my hoodie that I took home from Echo. But I wrote all those descriptions for their website. So literally an entire website. And I'm talking about hundreds of pieces of clothing and everything had to have its own description and it was echo and echo red the girls line yeah. um, and it was a lot of work and i didn't get paid much for it but you know i was i negotiated to get a separate a second check off of it and you know working there i got to work with some really dope um people who were already connected and we kind of helped them be the bridge so that the stress people didn't have to like take on all the work. And one of those people is DJ EFN at the time he was with crazy hood, which was like a street promotions company out of Miami. And they did a lot of stuff with echo and he was amazing and had this great team in Florida and we right. became real good friends. And now he does this little show called drink champs. Right. It's that same DJ. EFN. I knew his name was familiar. <laughs> and um, my homeboy T Eric Monroe, he also was already working with echo and doing a lot of skate content for them. That's another familiar name. He's a very famous photographer. Um, and one of the most important black hip hop photographers who's still alive because a lot of them have passed on yeah. and most people who have taken the really famous shots were not uh they weren't themselves black people for the most part but t eric is an incredible photographer and he shot in the skate world too so a lot of pictures for like thrasher magazine and source and vibe and just i post his stuff all the time i put up a big l picture that he took recently and He's just a brilliant photographer um, and he was doing all these skate events. And so he's he's worked more recently with Red Bull and just big companies and doing big things and big events. And he came also from that um, family of, of people who were already kind of affiliated with Echo. And then the other person is Coltrane Curtis, who he's like a lifestyle and marketing genius. And it was so amazing to work with him. And he's the one who... I don't know if you've ever maybe seen all these series of photos that I posted, but Mark Echo had a wife who was from 
Ecuador or something like that. And somehow yeah. she wants she wanted to be on a float in the Puerto Rican Day Parade. And so <laughs> Coltrane made it happen and Mark somehow paid for it or something. But then she ended up not going. So we had had this opportunity. And so me and my sis, Rachel, Rachel Raymond, she's a big director now. Um, at the time, she had come out to do some video content for Complex because we were at first supposed to be doing like a video magazine. And she's of Puerto Rican descent on her mother's side. So she and I got to go on the terror squad floats during the Puerto Rican Day Parade <laughs> and cover the parade. And we were up there with um, Fat Joe and Remy Ma and Joey Sunshine and everybody who was on. And Fat Joe had um, Big Pun's terror squad chain and he would hold it up among the crowd and the crowd would lose it and go crazy just going wild because that was really closely after the time that he had passed oh, and so you talk about yeah that it was okay. really it was bananas to be on a terror squad flow right after puns passing in the puerto rican day parade but all that was because coltrane had so much juice and he uh -huh. was able to make that happen. And I had cameras and we were shooting. I have a lot of still photos of it. We did pictures with Angie Martinez and Remy Ma. And it was incredible. Like, it was amazing to be on a flow with Fat Joe. And it was bananas. Like, one thing I'll never, ever forget about a good memory of Complex was that. And so, you know, we had like a little team of people who were like really affiliated with hip hop culture on a deep level. And it wasn't only the people from stress, but, you know, clearly we built a magazine from nothing. And also, you know, Echo wasn't known for being like the most high end wares or for being the most fashionable. It was kind of a little bit of an off brand, even if it's even in its height. So yeah, yeah. for us to build complex into a magazine where I was able to get Gucci and Timberland and Kangol and all these different, the North Face and all these companies, uh, sight unseen, to mm -hmm. send product and to place advertisements. Like that was off us. That was off the stress team and how fly we were and how we were able to make this illusion of a magazine before there ever even was one. <laughs> that's that's flexion before it became the word. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So even with that going, what's what's the money even flying around like it was? Like, okay, it's a new situation with complex and you just you just mentioned uh Gucci and all this, and, you know, ad, ad ad revenue is important in the print world. Um individually, what what is everybody's, you know, not not you don't have to throw out round numbers, but was it was it livable wage for everybody involved? I mean, it wasn't very livable for me. I, I was still hustling and I was um, running around with Tragedy Gaddafi, still helping him with some music stuff for whatever paper I could get from that situation. And when I was at Complex, I was um, doing business management for Doom and doing all his projects. And so it was like, I never got a chance to sleep or rest or anything. And I was just hustling nonstop. I was still hustling trees and... I had to, I couldn't live off the complex salary, but that wasn't necessarily only because like their salary wasn't dumb low. It was comparable to other like urban quote unquote urban magazines, uh, but 
it was the living in New York part. You know, it was like yeah. you, you had that was so even back then that was very difficult to achieve. Like you had to really um you had to really figure out some extra ways to make some bread and some ways to, you know, cut corners and stuff like that. And I also did these parties called Sneaker Pimping with um Beef Jones, who was one of Russell Simmons' proteges, and he worked with game records and he's now in film and television, Gregory Beef Jones. He was like a big um big industry dude at that time. And Peter Oasis, who was a huge nightclub prom promoter and DJ soul who had been my music editor at mass appeal. And he was the DJ for our events and I got the product placement. So I would bring um, different sneaker companies to the party every time we did it. And it was an amazing event series and I didn't make a lot of money, but it was a good, it was a good hustle and a good little extra money. And like our parties were off the chain like I don't know if you ever saw the pictures that I put up of like guru in it's in this weird like massage parlor called happy endings where we used to have the party and there's a picture <laughs> I took of guru with these blonde white girls and it was like one of the craziest pictures ever that you would never expect and there were always luminaries and big people in our party and we used it you just said flexing before flexing but we used it to flex like one time Diddy came and we just left him out there. And we just kept telling him that there was no room in the party. <laughs> he was just, like, standing there as long as, and with his entourage or whatever. And we were like, we had Evil D in the party and right. um, Mr. Khalil from the Bush Babies and like, you know, Guru and underground, uh, underground luminaries and stars and, you know, people yeah. that like, that probably most people might not have even heard of or knew who they were, but like Bizarre Royale and just this yeah. whole like cadre of like um, superstars from New York on the underground scene. And we just left Diddy outside, like, mm, just keep waiting, keep waiting. Huh? We, don't, we don't really want <laughs> you in our party anyway. <laughs> now that's a image. Now that's an image I wouldn't have expected. Like, you know, that, that you know, having Diddy check out your thing is like a real that you down but that it's actually a flip side to it because y'all wouldn't even let him in <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really the right type of party for him it was only for the sexy people and he was kind of generic to me so I was like I don't know I guess he could keep waiting and it just you know I mean the party really was full you know to keep it a buck it was pretty full but <laughs> we maybe could have made room for him <laughs> was this was this around the time let's see did he have that album out that uh that forever album with the uh he had Hurricane G on the Public Enemy number one remake. This was 2000, 2001, 2002 era. I don't remember. Oh, okay, the around around year. that time. Okay, yeah. yeah. And so imagine all these things are happening all at the same time. Like I'm doing Doom career when he's in New York. I'm doing Complex full time and then some. I'm doing Echo stuff on this quote unquote on the side. I'm mm -hmm. working with Tragedy Gaddafi and going running the studios with him and getting him press and publicity. And then I'm also doing this party. It was just a lot. It was a lot. It's a good thing I was young because I was exhausted. It was nonstop. <laughs> it was seven days. It was seven days a week. And I was going upstate to visit MF Grimm in the penitentiary all the time. So the my every weekend, all weekend was a trip on a jail bus twice on Saturday and twice on Sunday. I went religiously while he was incarcerated up there until they moved him to Staten Island. But I went every single weekend, twice a weekend, unless Doom was in town. 
and then sometimes I would go once or sometimes I wouldn't go up, but that was pretty rare. For the most part on the weekend, I was on a prison van most of the day, both days. And um, that was to see, that was to see Graham because he was, you know, he was unfortunately there and his album was out and we thought he was going to be gone forever because they hit him with those Rockefeller drug laws, but right. We were able to get his case overturned and he came home and he's home and he's great. He's good. And he's working in film and television as a showrunner and he's put out a lot of books and he's still doing music things. And I spoke to him not too long back and, you know, he's doing very well. So I'm so glad that we were able to see him come home. He was bound to do something. So I'm not surprised that he's into, uh, into that, into the, uh, show business Mm -hmm. like that, you know, I mean, dude, it's, there are ghost stories about certain MCs, and he's the one that I think he got the most out of everybody. What's the connection? What's the connection with Graham? With he and I? Yeah. Well, working for Stress, um, V asked me if I would be in LA on a certain day, and I said yes, and he um, asked me, could I do a KMD interview? And at that time, KMD was uh, going to make new music and it was going to be doom and grim. And so I went to the Valley and I put up that picture recently too of doom and grim together. Yeah. And, um, that was the day I met them and the day I interviewed them for stress magazine. And the pup, the magazine did print the story. It's the KMD article that's in there. And it shows it was the same time that the, they were doing the black bastards re-release. Um, right. Okay. I have, I have that. You have that one for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote, I wrote that and, that was the first interview. And then they went back to New York and Grim was getting ready to go to jail and we kept in touch. And um, we talked a lot on the phone and we got to know each other pretty well. And I spoke to Doom a couple of times in the interim of that as well, like after the, the article was finished and everything. And so um, Grim was about to go turn himself in and he asked me if I would want to come to New York and see him the day before he went inside. So I said yes, and I took the ticket and got myself together and went all the way from um, L.A. to New York. And I didn't really like know how hectic you know things were for him or how much things he had to try to do and he's in a wheelchair this whole time and he had to get himself ready and turn himself in first thing in the morning so we had a a meal uh, me him and Dom we ate and then he told me you know we're gonna get you a room and then I'm gonna come back once I'm done running around and I'll come and see you and spend some time with you and I was like all right bet so I was at the room and I was there by myself and it was getting later and he didn't call and he didn't show up and Doom hit me a couple times. And so finally I was like, okay, well, I guess just come by for a bit. And we kicked it. We smoked some trees and we just chopped it up and talked and then he left um, and I was still waiting and then Grim never came and then he went to prison. And so I went back <laughs> to Cali right away and then we kept in touch with letters and then when they reached me about the complex job, I was like, well, fuck it. You know, I guess this is all a sign that I need to move to New York. My brother has the apartment. I can live there for a while. I have this job. 
Percy Graham is there in jail and he really does need me and I'll, you know, I'll be visiting him frequently. And then Doom was in Georgia, but he had been talking about kind of taking over some of the record business stuff that Percy had been doing and wanting uh, to do a label and all these things. So those were parts of the reasons why I moved to New York was to do metal face shit and to do day by day, um, which was Grimm's label and to be able right. to visit Grimm and all that, all those things. And then that, um, building where my brother lived, I was able to get into one of the units. Um, and it was a trip. It was like really like a storage closet. It didn't even have windows and it had a big metal double door. And so it was pitch black in there when you closed everything up. And I was able to get into that space for a really low price. So I didn't have to have roommates. And then once Doom started coming often to New York, we turned it kind of into the studio. And so if I was there or not there, he had keys to the building and he had keys to the unit and he would bring his setup down from Georgia, up from Georgia, I should say. And he would record there. He would make beats there. He would mix and master albums there. He recorded my voice for Grimm's album there. Um, he worked on a lot of Take Me to Your Leader for King Gidra there. A lot of the beats for um, Food. Uh, Vic Vaughn was done up out of that apartment. We recorded it at the sounding guys, the producer's spot, but it was all based either at mine in Brooklyn or Devin from Nature Sounds had a big warehouse uh, space in Brooklyn, a little bit away. And so Doom, when he would come up to New York, he would spend most of the time either at Devin's or at ours, which basically became like his pre-production studio and his studio away from his home studio. I, I, I could dig that. I could dig that. That's kind of, that's real gorilla yet professional recording and you know you can you know you have a regular space to where you're comfortable at and you know you could just do things on the fly or execute it at will um well since you already talk about doom this leads into the whole the day she met doom mm -hmm. yeah oh well it's a book a memoir that i'm working on um the time she faced doom and I uh, actually have had to set it to the side because of the um, Hollywood strikes, the Writers Guild of America strike, the Directors Guild was on strike, and now the SAG after, which is all the actors, um, they're oh. all on strike. So the way it I'm works- glad, I'm glad you brought that up, by the way. Well, the way it works is that if I was to even write one sentence on that book during the strike, Right now, I'm considered pre-WGA, which is pre-Writers Guild, which means that if there were not a strike and I wrote something, I could be considered to become a member of the union as an essayist and nonfiction author. Oh, and, but okay. during the strike, you can't write anything except personal work, which is like a diary, basically. You can't. You can't okay. collect with, you can't connect with a new publisher. You can't connect with an agent unless you get a manager first and then the manager takes your work to an agent. So in any other time in this country, I could write this book and send it to a hundred different book publishers and they could reach me and they could ask me who represents me and they could set up a deal and they could publish my book. And it would be all good if I wanted to do it that way or if I wanted to just get an agent and have an agent shop it or whatever the case would be during normal times. But in this time, you can't even write anything 
or else you will be considered crossing the picket line. And then later when the strikes end, your work will not be able to be considered and you won't be able to join the union in the future because you will have already crossed against their lines. Now, my grandparents were union organizers, so I am very already pro-union and especially in Hollywood because my family has worked with the Hollywood unions for generations, literally three generations. And so I would never do that anyway, but especially because for me, I have a whole autobiography and memoir, and then I have a cookbook. I have a bunch of different books that are in progress that I've worked on over the years, but this doom one is really just a time capsule and it's just an era. And it's just that time, those almost 10 years that I spent very close with him and working with him and doing all these big projects that he had at the time. So I wouldn't even want there to be a chance that if I wrote the book now, that it would be barred from becoming something within film and television, because it could be a documentary, it could be a TV series, it could be a movie. I'm not a big biopic fan. I'm not a big fictionalized fan. I would rather see a documentary, but it's ill. I mean, the life was a movie for real. Like people say that as a cute little terminology or whatever, but come on, my life combined with Doom's life and that era and being in New York in the upper echelons of the music industry, me, I was in the industry. He wasn't, he was my plus one. I was bringing him places. People were like, who the fuck is that guy? You know? And so like he had (laughs) Doomsday out and people, some people knew, of course, a lot of people knew of KMD and Zev Love X, but a lot of people didn't make the connection of who he was and what, what that all meant. And some people knew the Doomsday record. It wasn't unknown or unheard of. Right. But, people was up on, on, on Doomsday, but they, like you said, they didn't make the connection between, uh, like it was, it was still in the pocket of that era or the indie era to where new that Doom was Zev Lovitz from KMD, and that that was folks that just didn't that just missed that they didn't know who what what importance KMD had. Right, it was very underground, and you know everything that happened with KMD was in was kind of underground once once everything happened with them getting dropped from the label and the record not being released publicly and all that kind of stuff. You know they did have their moment when they were in those third base videos, and they definitely had a big moment with Peach Fuzz and Mr. Hood, and they they did yeah. have time. But you know, for for cats who were not that old, you know, for them, like if they did know about Doomsday, they probably were from an age where they did not know about KMD, or exactly. it was something that was like an ancient history. You know, now there's more of a renaissance, and now '90s and late '80s hip hop is like a whole genre. It's a whole thing. Like my nieces and nephews and little baby cousins be knowing about stuff where I'm like, how do you know about that? What, who taught you that? What, what are you telling me about Brand Nubian? How are you telling me about Brand Nubian? How are you telling me that you were watching the Peach Fuzz video? Like, what is happening? You know, so it's, it's kind of like a renaissance of that. But at that time, especially because I was in New York in the thick of it, in the industry industry, yeah, yeah. He wasn't in that scene like that. And so I was taking him to big industry functions and Nike parties and film and television events and openings of movies and TV shows and places where he probably just wouldn't have gone. You know what I'm saying? But I was doing business management for him and I was trying to open as much doors for him as I could. So 
for me, you know, if even because he didn't like to go out, he he was not with it. He didn't want to go. He wanted to stay inside and make a beat or write a rap or read a book or whatever, smoke some weed. He didn't really want to go out. But I was like, a lot of times, like, look, this is a big Nike event. And if you go, maybe, and then look, sure enough, once I was gone, later down the line, he certainly did do a dunk with Nike and some other Nike deals. And he had, he had met the, the higher ups at Nike parties because I literally wrote him as my plus one and brought him through the door. Yeah, you brought him through that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, we could keep going. We could keep going with Doom. Um, cause I'm pretty sure you have a story that leads up to the whole mad villain thing. I mean, you know, it wasn't. It was that I was. Um, once again, I was doing journalism, and DJ Soul was my music editor at Mass Appeal, and he reached out to me and asked me would I be in LA, and he sent me to interview Madlib, and I've known Madlib for ever. Cause I'm part of the liquid crew, like an extended family member of the liquid crew. And so is he. See, I didn't know that you have mm-hmm. so many, you have so you are connected with a lot of dope families. And yeah. I know down the line, liquid crew is, um, I think they're connected. Okay. So uh, let me challenge my knowledge. Right. Okay. King T uh-huh. that East with the alcoholics exhibit barbershop MCs feel yeah. the agony. Uh, I want to say, uh, I want to say DJ Khalil and, and uh, Chase. Mm, related, like cousins, but no, not in not in the family. But Madlib, oh, okay. Madlib and Wildchild. Madlib um, and Wildchild, yeah. Yeah, and that was that Oxnard thing, and because that that area was affiliated, um, J Roll was was from Pomona, and like there was like this con- these connections, um, and so Otis and Wildchild, and also Dilated Peoples, um, Rafa, yep. and they were very closely affiliated and part of the Liquid Crew, and then later it kind of expanded a little bit to have like strong arm steady in there and so yeah. in that way you know chase and khalil very very close but the same thing there's a lot of people Mitchie Schlitt. there's a lot of people also in that liquid crew cypher who didn't do the music part there was right. a lot of us like b finn my homie rest in peace b finn i went to um junior high school with him and he was murdered he was killed by a like a vehicular manslaughter on his bike in LA a couple years back during the uh, pandemic. And he was the street team person for loud records. And he was instrumental in everybody from the liquid crew getting known and getting out there. And I had known him since we were in the seventh grade, me, him, Kronzon, and uh, my niece's father, uh, DJ Minus, he went into the radio promotions department at Jive Records later on. But we all were in the seventh and eighth grade together. So, like, we <laughs> all went far in the industry. But back in those days, we were little kids at Bancroft Junior High School. And um, so there were a lot of people like me or like B. Finn or um, people who were just kind of behind the scenes in the liquid. My homegirl, Mona Lisa, who was like, she worked for Loud when all they had was a desk and a chair. You know, she was instrumental in building up Loud Records. And Bigger B, Chase's cousin, who had the club Unity, and he was an executive at Loud. Um, we heard we heard a lot about Bigger B oh, over yeah. here. Bigger B was the name, Unity. Yeah, Bigger B is a yeah. legend. And that's actually yeah. Chase's cousin. Rest in peace, Bigger B. Is he was a... Uh, Man, he he gave me he gave me opportunities just to be able to attend events that I probably shouldn't have been allowed in because I was so young. And he would always take time to talk to me in the line or in the front and 
just asked me, you know, questions about what I was doing. And we would talk about my father and music and all kinds of things. But he always um, gave me a chance and he always gave me the time of day and he always gave me wisdom about what he was doing with the clubs and the parties. And he very much embodied Los Angeles and our hip hop scene. And Unity was like, I met, you know, most most of like the loves of my life that I had back in those days, I met them there because I was a dancer and I was in dance gangs and crews and stuff like that when I was younger. And I went to a dance affiliated school when I was a kid and Unity was just like an extension of that. And sometimes I literally was so young that I wouldn't know for a fact I was going to get dressed. I was going to steal a car or steal money from my mama purse to pay for a yellow cab to get to a place (laughs) where likely I was going to have to sneak in a back door, hop a gate, hop a fence. Most of the time people were not going to let me in the front. I was a child, but he knew me and he knew I was involved in dance and he knew that, um, I always came with my other homegirls and we were pretty and we were like really good dancers. And we brought a lot of culture and flyness to an event, even though we were extremely underage. And he did have events that were appropriate for like teen or like later teen, but I was young, young. Like I started partying in LA when I was 12. I, I, you know what? I was about to say you was 12 years old. (laughs) Yeah, I was 12 years old. So uh, I was not supposed to be in the club. I was my mom thought I was asleep in my bed in the front and I religiously would come home. So right before it was time to get up and mess up my bed, climb in the window, mess up my bed, take my shower, get my school books together and go to go to school without having not one (laughs) and still be a little high and a little drunk and smell a little bit like a Newport. (laughs) Okay, okay, you say bigger B. Uh, we ask you questions about you know uh family and stuff. Um, your dad, your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your father was this this big uh jazz man. Yeah, he definitely was. I you know, it's so surreal for me to try to think back on all of it because really, after he passed uh, away, and my godfather Cecil Taylor who was a very, very famous jazz pianist. And he was in groups with my father for many, many decades. And they recorded a lot of really pivotal music, what was called free jazz. They were basically considered like the fathers of free jazz and bebop. And, you know, my father, um, he, his resume, like my resume crazy, but his resume is wild. Like the people that he recorded with, it's just insanity. It's Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Frank Zappa, The Grateful Dead, Beyonce, Barry White, um, Billie Holiday, Cecil Taylor, Archie Shepp, Quincy Jones. I mean, it just goes on and on. Earth, Wind & Fire, Tower of Power, The Eagles. He played all the bass parts on Hotel California album. Like His resume is insane. The music that he recorded and created. He was a conductor. He was in classical orchestras, the Boston uh, Philharmonic, the Los Angeles Symphony. He played at Tanglewood. He played Monterey Jazz Festival. He was huge in music and huge in jazz and classical and rock. And then later he became a studio musician. And he 
recorded every X-Files episode and he played principal bass on all the Disney movies and Disney shows. And I mean, it was illustrious, the, 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 the people that he recorded with over his time. And he started recording in like 1949 or 1950 or like so far back that you damn near think, oh, there weren't even records then. There were. And he was recording way back in like literally the late 40s or maybe 1950. And he recorded until 2017 and he never, ever stopped. And so, you know, his discography is just like, it's crazy. It's bananas. Like, he, he was eulogized in the New York Times and in Billboard um, and all the jazz publications. And I learned things about him after his death that I didn't even know about some of those things. Like, and some of it, to be quite honest, pisses me off. Like he wrote some kind of song with Barbara Streisand and he was helping her write it in the studio and he didn't get properly credited for it or paid for it and oh. I, even, I even hit her on twitter like hey barbara holla because you owe me some bread <laughs> i believe i saw that yeah that i was day. like hey barbara <laughs> barbara 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 because my stepmother unfortunately illegally received everything of my father's music wise in the will and i haven't had the you know my godfather cecil taylor died then my father died then I lost Badass. He died during the pandemic. He was one of my close, close, close friends. I, I remember. He, I remember he died in jail. We still don't really know what happened. It's really, you know, just yeah. losing all these people back to back. And then, honestly, you know, I knew that Doom had passed. Nobody, no one told me. You know, I just knew. And I even posted something about it a couple of weeks after he had passed on. And then I left and I wasn't online and I'm, I was more in mourning for him for a long time. And I was just at the house and I was to myself and I wasn't online and I wasn't talking to people and I wasn't taking and making phone calls or doing business or meetings or emails or nothing. And then uh, it was New Year's Eve and yeah, I was at the studio yeah, with well. Flood and I was cooking and Flood was working on something, trying to record or trying to mix or something. And he was like, yo, your phones is and inter- the internet and everything is going insane. He's like, you have hell of phones just pinging. And he was like, can you, you know, check um, or turn everything off or something? And I knew, I knew. And I, I, I thought it was somebody else very close to me that might have passed. And I was so scared. And I just remember I sat on the bed and I was like, please, God, don't let it be that person. And please don't let it be an overdose or an accident or anything. Cause I can't, like, I can't take it. I can't take one more thing. And I looked and I saw, you know, I had like hundreds of notifications and I knew, you know, it was doomed, but it wasn't new information to me, even though, like I said, nobody told me, but I've been new. So then I kind of had to relive it because I had already been through a grieving process and then I had to go through a whole other one. Yeah. With, with because, all that. Yeah. Because the, the just like how you said it right there, I remember like that was one of them times where I remember where I was when it was like, okay, MF Doom, MF Doom is dead. And it's like, y'all bullshit. Y'all mm. play too much. Y'all play mm. too much. And then it's like, I started seeing folks, reputable people, folks like Dart Adams. Folks like Dark Adams is actually saying like, yo, Doom really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then like his wife comes out and and post post a picture of Doom and you know, you know, uh we would like to, mm-hmm. you know, 
you know, the things that you say when a family member dies and stuff, you know, we, we regretfully report, inform the public of this news and, and everything. So it's just like, wow. And then the whole shocker was like, all right, just like how you knew. We finding out, like, it was a couple months back that he, you know, that he passed. Didn't even know the man was sick or anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you having, having to have to relive that experience again yeah it was a lot and then also you know now with this inquest and all the information you know because i i have been told that he passed away in the caribbean i i wasn't i wasn't informed that he died in in uh the uk i didn't know that i didn't know that um and you know i have been out of touch uh with doom himself with the exception of passing messages a few times between some of our mutual friends Honestly, after my villain, I did not um, continue. I chose to leave the company. I chose to leave uh, Metal Face and leave Doom and leave all the business. And I had promised him I will work up until Coachella. And I worked one day after Coachella and then I jetted and I never, uh, he wasn't into phones and cell phones and emails and everything like that. And he had, he had gatekeepers and people who kept him from being in touch uh, with a lot of people in his life. So I, um, just didn't talk to him. And I had many updates about him and his health and where he was at and what he was up to. And a couple of times passed a couple messages here and there. And I've always kept in touch with his younger brother, Jim. And I've always kept in touch with a lot of the Monster Island czars and lightly kept in touch with Curious. And, you know, Keo Lord Scotch is one of my very close friends and we always kept in touch. And I always kept in touch with Devin, who was still doing business for Doom up until the time, you know, that he passed. He was still kind of like wrapping up a lot of the business and everything, um, giving him back his masters and things like that. And, you know, we kept in touch. And so, you know, I knew little things here and there that maybe the public didn't know. But, um, you know, I didn't really study his day to day life. And I, I really honestly, after I left, I didn't listen to Mad Villain for maybe 10 years after it came out. And the reason being, look at let's let's since we we have crossed that bridge now, um, let's delve into the reasons why that you know that you had a hand in Mad Villain and why you haven't listened to it more than ten years after it dropped. Well, um, I mean, the hands in it was you know setting up the interview with Madlib and. Um, at the end of it, I asked the last question I asked him was, who would he want to work with in his dream, you know, of of anybody he could choose from? And he said, Doom. And so when I turned off the tape and I, again, I know Otis personally and had been known him for years. So I said, you know, oh, I, I'm doing some business and, and management and stuff uh, for Doom. And I said, I'm going to hook it up. I said, we're going to make something happen so that you guys can do at least a song or something together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to convince Doom. Doom didn't know who Madlib was. Oh, and wow. he didn't know his work at all. Like, no knowledge whatsoever. And so I got him, you know, in tune to Liv's work. And he was digging it. And he liked it. And he was like, okay, I can see this. And he was like, okay, I can see something happening. And he said, so what's the what's the money? What's the label? What's the budget? What's the situation? Mm-hmm. And then we had to fuck with, you know, with Stone Stroll. And right. um, they didn't... Cool. They didn't want to pay enough money and he didn't really, especially at first, I think he became close to some of them later on, but 
especially at first, he was like, man, fuck these dudes. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I was like, I've heard a lot of rumors. <laughs> I've heard a lot of rumors. And basically, like, if we don't get it up to the money that you require, then, of course, you know, it won't be a thing. I said, no matter yeah. how much you like his beats, I said, maybe in the future, y'all collab or something. And um, at first, it was supposed to be that they would work together on some beats and that they would work together on some rhymes and work together on putting it all together. And that it would be kind of truly collaborative, almost like a band, almost like how Lib had did with yesterday's new quintet. Kind of like, uh, you know, that's okay. what it was supposed to be. But, yeah. but Stone's Throw made a very low ball offer. And so he really wanted to do it and I was pressuring him to do it. I wanted, you know, I really wanted it to happen. I could really see it. And so he was like, all right. He's like, but I'm not going to do all that for this money. And I was like, no, I feel you. And I said, well, I'll forego my money from you. I said, we'll have to work something out with the label paying me or something like that. But in terms of a cut from this tiny ass amount of money that you're going to get, Let's just keep it at zero because I really want this to happen. So that was my agreement with him. Uh -huh. So therefore, he didn't never owe me nothing from that building. Okay. So let's get that straight. Because you will never, ever be able to pull up anything of me saying that he reneged on no financials with me or anything like that. Because it's not, it's just not the case. And uh, it's not something, you know, me and him's agreement as far as Matt Villain was all good. It started to get bad and murky when basically he was like, I can't rap and produce and do this like collaborative thing for this low ass money. And I was like, I feel you. So he was like, I'm just going to rap. And that's how it happened. So them being cheap and tawdry and, you know, holding on to their purse strings like that. Now, can you imagine how much fucking money these people have made off this record in all these years? Yeah. When it cleared, yeah. When it cleared. 40,000 by like Whoa. maybe the midway point of 2004, something like that. Just just throwing a number out there. Lord, I mean, and then when we find out all these years down the line that they didn't even pay the people that was on the record. Wow. Oh, child. And when I looked recently into the um, discogs and saw on the song that I'm on, Fancy Clown, mm -hmm. ZZ Hill produced that original record. They cleared four samples off that whole album. They didn't clear no ZZ Hill or reach his family or nothing. <clears throat> Honey, I went oh, in and wow. put I went in and put ZZ Hill on all the everything discogs and Wikipedia. And if these Stones Throw dudes are listening, yeah, motherfucker, I did that. And you should pay <laughs> ZZ Hill's family. You owe them money. And right. everybody who was on that record, and I've been said this, I will wait in a line behind every black musician and artist of every generation who hasn't been properly paid by Stone's Throw, by Peanut Butter Wolf, by Egon, Egon. whatever oh, the fuck. Man. I will stand and wait in a line behind all of them until all of them have all their money. And if there's anything left, I'll take it. Or if there's a label left after that, I would want to take it, be, make it woman-owned and turn it into a nonprofit and a school for young black girls to learn how to make beats and run record labels. How about that? Well, that's an idea. That's an idea. It's been done. 
<laughs> I don't think we're going to get there. And one of the cold things about Stone Sour, besides the money and besides mm-hmm. the racial factors at play and besides what they did to Mad Lib and besides this Egon with these rhyme books and whoo. Oh, oh, that, that, that one besides right all that, mm-hmm. the, the thing about it is they've only had one woman employee in the entire time that they've ever existed. In the entire existence of Stone Store, they have only been they've one. had one woman who worked there. And then they decided to not allow me to be called a and r on the project even though i did the let's, artist and repertoire let's, that get, was in, their, let's, let's get into that let's that get was into their that. choice they decided to call me project coordinator or whatever that was that they called me they chose that title but by putting a title and my name on the record jacket wouldn't that imply especially if i'm a project consultant or a project coordinator then wouldn't that imply that i got paid um Giving you a title would imply you're getting paid. And they chose that and they put that on that record. And I've never gotten not one penny from Stone Throw ever in my life. So I would love for one of them to be able to show that they ever cut me any kind of check or payment of any kind because they never have. And the only part of it that I have any fault in is that I've never registered my publishing for Fancy Clown and put the record in dispute because I that is my voice on there. And I did write what I said on there, Doom didn't write it, I wrote it. And he had me to record it a certain way. But the coldest part is every time these fools re-release this record, they turn my voice down. There's even versions where I'm not on the record. That's, 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 that is so foul in, in, in a twist or way that, um, that how, uh, the, the record um, with Mad Lib and, and Dilla was done the champion sound like mm-hmm. they had to yeah Stone Store mm-hmm. had to re-release it because of the sample clearance thing mm-hmm. on on the first one ironically mm-hmm. <laughs> ironically it, it, it was a thing of what was the song the red yeah the Christian sample right mm-hmm. there and yeah yeah she she came after them for that I think and you know they had to go back and take that version off that album and do a like you know put together like a remix uh like a dope this i i have it i own it and stuff so this is like you know um roundabout fair play whatever you yeah once again at at by due to a woman hold on hold on one second ma'am i will let that do this podcast it's there just hold tight just hold tight. All right. Chris Williamson, real, real, real quick history. Uh, Chris Williamson is one of those women in that. Yeah. <laughs> Chris Williamson is was a part of that. Yeah. Chris Williamson was a part of that mid to late 70s uh, women's music uh, mm-hmm. movement. That was out on the West Coast. That included her, uh, Kay Gardner, uh, Linda Tillery, mm-hmm. uh, where that was like a certain section of women who came up in the independent ranks and and put up and put out their own albums independently and was revolutionary for that. So it's kind of ironic that that happened on the J Lil project and then comes the Mad Villain and then like. 
Stone Throw's notorious for not clearing samples and stuff, and it's just like, <laughs> right. yeah. And and you know it, it bites them, and just like how it did Rockus a few years earlier when like uh when like Pharaoh Marsh blew up with the uh, Simon Says, and it was like you know. Him being in that in that type of position, Monch being in that type of position before, it was just like, hey, don't y'all think we need to clear this? And then the guys at Rockets was just like, when the record blows up, mm-hmm. and and then it ended up being, uh, uh, a Peter Guns and Lord Tariq issue with like Deja Vu, you know, Steely Dan. Steely uh-huh. Dan came after them because mm-hmm. the record blew up, and by the time once a record blows up in the rap world and then it gets to the ears of the guys that you took the tune from they're gonna water all the money yeah it's too late then yeah it's too late then but you know it's interesting how these guys always get to just pop back up and reinvent themselves every single time because you know up rocks is the raucous dudes or one of the raucous dudes and you know that? I, di- I didn't know that and rap cats is egon and so people, see, that's the thing. And people are like, oh, well, I'm not going to support Stone Throw anymore because they didn't pay med or to claim or whatever. Yeah. And then, but they turn around and they're buying stuff left and right from Rapcast. And it's kind of like, mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, and look at that. Egon, Egon has a label called Rapcats. And that's from, uh, that's from a Mad Lib record, a Quasimodo or something. Well, that's the other thing, too, is that I think after Madlib left um, Stone's Throw, I think he was still doing a lot of stuff with Rapcats, and I think maybe Egon was still managing him. And then only later did he get Stacey Epps um, to be his manager, and she's an attorney. Um, and yeah, shout out to Stacey Epps. Yeah, no, of course. And she um she was an artist who Doom had worked with on some records too. Um Yeah, she sung. She, yeah, she yeah. sung or still sings. I'm not really sure if she is is spending time doing recording artistry, but probably. I mean, she I'm pretty sure. I've never met her and I don't really know much about her, but I'm pleased that Madlib has good management and someone who's looking out for him and someone who is an attorney and has good experience, you know, that's a big bonus and that's a big plus. And so, you know, you can tell, um, you know, that he's living a more higher quality of life and he deserves that because what was happening to him at Sonsa was real fucked up, you know? And yeah, um, it was a real, it was a real, Puffy and Biggie situation. Yeah, really a lot. You know, these guys are not good guys. And anybody who's defending still spending money with them is like, nah, fam. And uh, I, you know, for me personally, like them turning my voice down or taking me off. Straight I don't know. I don't know if they feel like they're somehow doing something over here at my house or what they think, but all they're really doing is disrespecting the way that Doom wanted the record to sound. That's all they're doing by fucking with the audio of that record is is changing his creation. And why would you do that? You know, greed and hate will make you do some crazy things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, that's just you know, in a way, in a way of 
trying to erase you out of the legacy of not just the record, but out of anything doom related? Well, you know, that's why I didn't listen to the record for 10 years. And that's why, you know, it took that man, Will Hagel, writing the book about mad villainy. And when he, when he reached me, to be honest, you know, I was going through this health situation. I had been um, having a lot of problems uh, with my job at the time. I was living in a really, really fucked up predicament um, and having to go back to street work um, and putting myself in danger and doing all kinds of shit. And when I got that message from this man, I was like, really? A total unknown white man is going to get paid to write a book about mad villainy. Meanwhile, I'm sitting over here and I cannot get people who used to be my intern, who's now editors at publishing houses and magazines. I couldn't get them to give me an article and pay me a hundred dollars to write it. I could get nothing from no one. And this man is contacting me. Will I do this interview about mad villain? But the reason I said yes is because all those years up until now only one person has ever interviewed me about mad villainy and that is um dana scott he's a homeboy of dart adams i did it because dart said okay. it was cool now okay. i did the interview with him and i think it was for hip-hop dx so i don't end up in the article i already knew what it was and i said oh so i got cut out of the article huh he was like yeah he said they, they said you didn't pass fact check because what happened was this huh? fucking circle of incel white boys has been lying the whole time about their importance, about their involvement. They all just had this pact, like basically like, well, fuck that bitch. We're just going to say this guy did this and this one did that. And who's going to believe her over us? And nobody did. Dart Adams has always advocated for me. Tim Hotep has always advocated for me. My homeboy Havana Joe, who did street for um for Stone So for many years, always advocated for me. People who were there and who really know me and who really know that I brought Doom to their studios or that they met Doom through me or they knew how many years I ran around with him or whatever. A lot of people did know the real story, but it didn't matter when it came to the media. Because course, all the right. white men had the same lie. Yeah, yeah. And the Will Hagel dude, when he hit me, he was like, yeah, he's like, some of these stories, these stones throw stories and these Egon and these dudes, it's not adding up. And he was like, and a lot of people have said your name. And he was like, this shit is not adding up. And he's like, I really would like to talk to you. And I was like, okay. I was like, fuck it, I'll do it. So I talked to him. And not only did I talk to him, but he said so in interviews that I A&R'd his book besides the album. I anr his book because I'm the one who put him together with people in Doom's family and with Lord Scotch and with Dante Ross. And some of the people I think declined to do the interviews. But the point is I made introductions between him and all these people. And he did interview a lot of these people and get background and was able to talk to a bunch of different people instead of just the usual suspects who were basically holding up a lie. You know, they're so right. So it's so funny because now that this white man wrote about me and put my name in a book. Now it's all valid. Now it's true. <laughs> that record came out so fucking long ago. And now everybody wants to talk to me to where right. 
to where, you know, I love to do the interviews and there's certain people that I love to speak to. You know, I just did Fly Fidelity and I've been fucking with that dude, Luke Bailey. And Yo, Luke Bailey is cool. Luke Bailey is a cool guy. They man. used to have Conspiracy Radio, him and Menace. And I fucked with that show since forever. And so when he <laughs> reached me, I was like, yes, I definitely want to do that. And if Dart wanted to interview me or when you said that you wanted to, you know, there's certain people, I'm going to do it. I'm going to fool with it. But, you know, it's also very time consuming and talking about doom and talking about this mad villain stuff, especially in my poor health and in my poor financial situation, it's hard because you don't don't get paid. You know, that's the thing. Like, um, in uh in the movie um in the movie wild style you know though there's that whole scene of the graffiti <laughs> artist saying he gonna get paid for doing the yeah, interview and then his homeboy like no nah, it doesn't work about? like that what you and you know get paid and coming from it on this side which for the most part i've been on the other side and a lot of times didn't get paid for that but coming right. from this side i'm like well, damn, I sure did spend 10 hours talking about some old shit that I did that I imagine this, bust this scenario. I didn't get paid for a and the record. I didn't get paid for my voice being on the record. Now I didn't get paid for helping this white boy make this book about the record. And now I'm doing a bunch of interviews that I also don't get paid for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we laughing at it because it's happening, but then, then again, it's like, you know, where's the justice for real? It's just not funny, you know? And so it's like, I've had people tell me they think that I should bootleg my villain on vinyl. And I agree. <laughs> I, agree. I already have a, a layout for it and an OB strip. I was going to do it on a pink vinyl and change the cover and have it come as an import from Japan. And I have a whole, you know, a whole plan for it. Um, yeah. well, but, what, what harm could it do? Right, and also... <laughs> Uh, to quote to quote my girl Sheree from the Real Housewives of Atlanta, who gonna check me, boo? Who gonna the check counter me, suit, <laughs> The counter lawsuit? Ooh, oh, the counter suit. Ooh. That lawyer would be sitting on something fat, like in a bank. He would be like, oh boy, let's do it. You, you know, probably, you would probably get some chips then though. <laughs> and that's the thing is, I don't do that. I don't get lawyers. I haven't even sued my own stepmother for what my daddy was supposed to give me what's legally mine i haven't even sued this lady i don't like suing people and i don't like lawyers and the funniest part and the last thing that i'm going to say about stone's throw is you know i'm from la and i'm known in la and the circles that i run in are known and the people that i'm affiliated with are known and i'm not talking about music industry or anything else and a lot of times people are like well if someone named peanut butter wolf owed me some money and then they just make that face, like the meme with the dude with the red cup in his hand. Oh, yeah, conceited. <laughs> and they know that it's like, not only did I never get any lawyers or anything, which I never would have even thought of doing while Doom was alive, but not only did I ever do not ever do anything like that, but I don't know where these fools live. You know, I've been knowing where they live. I know where some of their mamas live. I know exactly who they are. I know their legal names. I know what kind of cars they drive. Mm-hmm. I know license plate numbers. I know a lot of shit. And a lot of people I know know a lot of shit. And so that's what they should consider is in this conversation, Yeah, they are lucky that I'm a woman. 
<laughs> they are very lucky because it's that one little piece of me that is nurturing and caring and loving about humanity. Even though I've been involved off and on over my lifetime in a lot of street shit and I've been involved in a lot of gangster shit and there's a lot of gangster shit tied into the music industry too. But I am a woman and I am, I'm wild and peaceful, you know, and I, I choose the peaceful side and I've chosen it over and over and over time and time again, even when my back was to the wall, even when I've been homeless, even when I haven't had a meal that day or whatever, I've let people live. Let's put it that way. Right, right. And it's, it'd be, that'd be the right road to take when you just, you know, you yeah. know, you had that power to do certain things, but you let them live. Yeah, because I have a very clean spirit. You know, I, I haven't maligned anybody or done anybody wrong or, you know, I, I really just haven't. And um, and I don't. I, and money to me is not the major issue. Money, money is not what motivates me, especially not about music. And from the most part, I am a nonprofit, even though I don't have an official one registered with the government. Like most of what I make goes back into the music or it goes to youth or it goes to, you know, mutual aid, people of mine, um, single moms who I know their kid is hungry. If someone sends me $500 for a payment and my homegirls recently reached me and she got her kids at home and she don't have food and her stamps are gone, guess what happens to that 500, you know, every time. And because I don't have children and I'm just being by myself. And for the most part, I'm good. And so, you know, with this medical thing, it's put me real behind financially. But I have to look at it from that perspective that, like, if there's women and children who need that more than me, for the most part, I'm going to give the majority of it to them. And that's just part of being a Muslim and part of being charitable and part of being, um, you know, just a member of humanity and looking at people as human beings. I don't look at anyone as a paycheck. I don't look at anyone's art or creation as a way for me to get rich or make money. I'm not a bloodsucker. I'm not a 10 percenter. I'm not here to get rich or wealthy off anybody else's creations. I want to set up infrastructure for them. I want them to have their own labels. I want them to do their own distribution. I want them to make all the money off their music and their product and their art and everything I know, everything I learned, everything I learned the first 13 years of my life, watching my father be in this music industry and everything I learned after I entered it myself at the age of 13 up until now, and I'm 49 anything I've learned that can be useful for artists to own their own shit and to make money themselves and to cut out middlemen. That's what I'm about. I'm about teaching them how to do it, showing them how to do it, showing their child's mother how to do some of it, showing their mama, showing their friend from the neighborhood, whoever it is that they want to build that team so they don't have to do everything themselves. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm here to do. That's what I've been doing all these years. And that's why you don't see me at a major label or a major magazine or in front of a lot of cameras when they do these documentaries and these interviews and all this stuff, because I'm a revolutionary and I'm here to help artists make it and for them to be able to get the money and get the visibility and get the fame and whatever tools they need to get to that place where they can have those days where they might make $10,000 into their PayPal off their band camp or whatever it is that can help get them set and help keep them going up. 
that's what I am about. And that's what I'm here for. And especially artists who have children and families and who otherwise their, their daughter could be in a situation like the one I'm in 10, 20, 30 years down the line where the father passes on and there's this huge legacy and the child gets zero dollars and zero cents of it. I'm here to make sure that shit don't happen to nobody else if I can help it. That's straight up. And you know, salute to you. I could I could end this episode right here, but it's one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. One more thing. One more thing later. All that, you know. Um <laughs> before we get into this last thing, it's uh that you do for you. all that you put your hands on because it's like you know obviously you have the Midas touch things turn to gold and come alive when you do it uh, um how do you uh how can I form this question all right we do talking about Stone Throw the Mad Villain thing you didn't say that in every interview <laughs> you done been in for the last half year um <laughs> It uh interesting thing happened after the Mad Villain album though, uh the formation of Angelus Records. Um yes, they um I have worked I have worked with Chase Infinite and DJ Khalil before when they had SOL Music Works. Um and that was interesting because I actually went to Martin's Records and Aaron's Records on just a you know vinyl shopping trip. Yeah. I was staying at my auntie's house in LA and I came home and I had bought this record called Love Allah and I played it and I was like, oh, wow. I was like, I love this record. This record is major. And it had a phone number on it, on the Circle label. So I just called the number and I was like, you know, I'm MJ. I'm a journalist and I'm here um, in LA and um, I would love to interview these guys so scientific because, you know, I really love this record and, you know, just hit me up and I left my numbers and everything and they called. They contacted me and then I offered to um, cook a dinner for them. And then Khalil had all these food allergies. So I found out about that. And then I invited them. And when I opened the door, Chase was very familiar to me, his face. I had definitely had seen him a million times because he's Big and B's cousin. So I've seen him at Unity and a bunch of other places. Ah, okay. And then I didn't really know Khalil's face. And I didn't know the executive guy, Frank. But then standing behind them was Crondon. And like I said, I went to junior high school with him. So <laughs> when they were coming in the house, I was like, oh, wow. I was like, okay, like this is like connected to like fam. And so they came in and we ate and we talked and I did an interview and I wrote about, um, I wrote about the song and the group and the label and everything. And then we kept in close touch and they needed somebody to run the publicity and promotions and press and stuff for the self-science, which was on land speed, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and so I became kind of like part of their team and I worked on that record with them and we got very, very close and they're part of a larger crew called the solar panel. And I'm affiliated with the solar panel. That's one of my main crews. And um, actually they're called sons of light, Allah's reflection. So self-science was on SOL Music Works. So that was the SOL, the Sons of Light part. Sons so when Light. Doom asked me, what's your name going to be for you speaking and talking on your on these records? And that's why I chose the name Allah's Reflection because it was the other part and the womanly part of the solar. And it represented the feminine to be the reflection of, of Allah, like the, the, the microcosm, the male human entity of God. 
And so I chose that as my name, but it was always a nod to my crew, to the solar panel, because we went back so far. And so that was Chase and Khalil. And we had done all this great work together. So then when they conjoined with Muggs and got the deal through Fontana, which was the independent arm of Universal Music Group, I had already, you know, basically shown to them that I'll work really, really hard because, of course, Lansby never paid me. <laughs> like, they never paid most people. Wow. Um, and so, <laughs> let's tell all the real true stories today. Let's tell that one right there. Like, Lansby put out a lot of records. Ooh, so many. And they paid yeah. so few people. Ooh, boy. Um, <laughs> but I heard, I heard Freddie Fox got paid when he showed up at their office. Oh, well, you know, he that's Freddie Fox. <laughs> So, you know, that some people did get paid, but not most people and definitely not a lot of vendors and things. So, right. um, you know, so when they did the, they were doing the Angeles thing and they had a limited budget and they were really spending probably some of Muggs personal money or Cypress Hill money or money he had set aside. And then, of course, the, the sweat equity and the labor of Chase. And now the thing about it is Chase, one of the best MCs ever. He's in my top five dead or alive. Like, I give a fuck what anybody say. Chase, Infinite oh, Rapper. He wraps circles around all these fools, which is so funny that he got so big doing management for ASAP Rocky and now yeah. for Benny the Butcher and all these different people. Because, man, Chase could out wrap those people and put them under a table with just <laughs> one bar. Yeah. Come Still, on, the manager raps so much better than you. Come on, fam. Come on, fam. <laughs> but you tell in no his matter. own right, you know, Aaron Chase Johnson, the record executive. Whew, right. He's you know, a beast, he worked, right? at Priority Records, I interned a little bit for him there. He went over to Artist Direct and just built their whole shit up. And everywhere he went, you know, he's a brilliant, brilliant record man. Like, oh my God. And I was always honored when he would take me to the majors, even if it was just to stuff envelopes or make invoices or help him with the event or whatever it was. I was always excited to be at Priority. I was always excited to be with Chase. And Cronton was an executive um, in the promotions department at Priority as well. And so I would go up there and we would all be all square and having meetings. And they would be like, yeah, this is our intern. And I would be sitting at a desk and doing whatever. And then, you know, meantime, we were like using resources to do self-scientific shit and Cronton shit and independent LA hip hop shit on the back of that. And so it was always this thing where it was like kind of swimming around the major indies but using that to utilize the resources and the tools and the time and the money um, to, to put real LA mm -hmm. underground hip hop out. Cause you know, making wax costs a lot of money and all the yes, stuff that we did, it really, really costs, you know? And so um, Chase reached me when they were doing Angeles and he was like, I really need somebody to do this work. And he's like, I have a very small budget. And he was like, and you're the only person that I know that you'll do the work no matter if it's zero dollars, you do the job the same way as if I have, you know, 5,000 for you or whatever. And he was like, you're the only person I can say that about. And um, I had already had a day where I went, um, I happened to be visiting LA and they had already started getting it going over there. And Chase hit me and he was like, yeah, can you think you could come and cook over here at the label? Um, at the studio and it's some cast from Soul Assassins up here. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I was like, let me go do groceries and stuff. So I made big Jamaican food for mugs and 
um, Earn Dog was there from Soul Assassins. And I think Sick Jacket might have been there that day. And just like, you know, Soul Assassins affiliates and Chase was up there. And that's when they were really kind of just starting Angelus. So I had already been at the studio and already cooked and, you know, he mugs had met me and all that stuff. And so it was kind of like a no brainer for him to say, okay, well, do you want to come over here? And it was supposed to be just me helping out a little bit here and there, but I just took it on like it was my full-time job. And I went almost every day. I would take the train out to the Valley and Chase would pick me up and I would just go sit at the label instead of the studio and do whatever I could. And I brought on interns. I had a really dope inter intern named Vanessa Martinez. Shout out to Vanessa, man, because she was, man, me and her used to have that shit spick and span. I mean, that's what people don't realize is like, I've done all the label work and I've been the executive and I've done the promotions and the marketing and the general management and every single thing you could possibly conceive of on the business side, but also man, I've done the laundry and bleached the clothes and got the, got the mm -hmm. gear ready for videos and for concerts. And I've cleaned every kitchen and every studio and cleaned out every refrigerator and cleaned toilets for your favorite <laughs> producers and rappers and DJs. And, and uh, that's, you know, that's the work that I'm, that I'm about and the work that I'm proud of is like, I'm, you know, I'm proud of the work that I've accomplished as a woman, as an executive in this industry, for sure. But the major big things to me are like doing those big meals, you know, for mugs and 20 people or, you know, always having some good food ready over there at Angeles in case Mitchie Slick was coming with his posse and it was going to be 20 people there. And I knew that they would eat good and not have to order Chinese food or pizza or whatever. And always just yeah. make sure that the studio was nice and clean. And if people needed beers or drinks or trees or whatever it was that I would like any woman, think ahead about that and say, okay, they're going to do something big and let me have everything all nice and all ready. Because those are my work husbands, you know, and everybody has been my work husband. Hieroglyphics is my work husbands, Doom, work husbands, Mugs and Chase and Khalil and everybody over there at Soul Assassins, work husbands, everybody that I've ever worked with, you know, I treat them like that because I do the job and I do it very, very well, but I'm, I am a woman. And usually I'm the woman. Usually I'm the only woman over there. And to me, I'm not going to leave your studio dirty. I'm not going to leave food uncooked. I'm not going to leave people having a not as good studio situation as they could because I was lazy or because I wanted to leave when the bell hit six o'clock. I would do it like, okay, it's six o'clock. That means it's time for me to cook, clean, grocery shop for tomorrow, see if there's any laundry, take it down the street to wash it, get everything ready for the concert, make sure the merch is organized, you know, all the extra things that weren't really part of my job description. But those are things that I do everywhere I go. It doesn't matter if it's the person's home or if it's the person's family or if it's that we're having an outing or whatever it is. Like, I'm always always ready with the food and I'm always getting things together as a, I've worked as a maid or a housekeeper, legitimate, like just, that's all, that was all I did was I was just a maid or I was just a private chef or sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm not the executive. Sometimes what people really value me for is the organizational skills and helping keep their household together if, you know, they don't have a wife at that time or, if somebody gets sick or if they have a new baby or whatever it is, you know, just they need help with their mom, somebody's sick, whatever it is. Because really, that's why you said that I have a Midas touch and I turn things to gold. But really mm -hmm. what it is, is that this is all 
in service. All of it is in service to the mostly male clientele is in service to your favorite MC, to your favorite rapper, to your favorite label, to your favorite producer, to your favorite DJ. I'm a servant and I serve mostly males. Sometimes I've had a few clients that were women or a couple times there's been women in the cipher at a label or been a project with women's on it. But for the most part, it's mostly men. And I don't see it as my job to be managed. And I don't see it as my job to duplicate and replicate. Like I could have followed behind Chase and tried to be a junior Chase and do every single thing that Chase did. And I would have learned a lot and I would have risen as an executive and I would have been able to do a lot of things maybe differently. And I probably would have made more money and had a higher title and a lot of things. But that's not my role in this life. And that's why I've been able to continue to do this for 36 years. And even now I've been able to continue to do it in pain. Like I'm in pain every day, but I'm still private chefing for artists and I'm still doing all the behind the scenes things that are needed. Cause a lot of, at this point, I've been working with a lot of these people for 20, 25, 30 years. So my family. So if they need help with their child care or if they need somebody to come and hold down the house or it don't matter if they got dirty laundry that they can't attend to I'll do it and I'm still doing I'm still doing the rapper's laundry I'm still cooking the producer's food I'm still getting the groceries together when people are sick they come to me for the remedy I still do it even now I do it in pain and also now a lot of times I do it and I don't accept money for it because that's the way my life works it works in favor it works off service it works mm. off being a help meet and being a, a gap when people, everything was going to fall apart for them. I came and I cleaned up everything I could and fixed everything I possibly could financially, music business wise, and on the personal and family note. And then usually right when everything gets good and gets straight and gets nice, and it would be a situation where I could stay. And I could probably become part of that company or that entity or somehow have a place in that household as a worker or as a member of it. Right when it's that point, that's when the next person reaches me in need. And I traditionally have always gone to the next person. Because I keep helping. I just keep helping everybody. And I figure... If that is what keeps all of this amazing music that I've been around afloat. It wasn't that I had a million dollars to pay for a project. It was that I gave a million dollars worth of help and support and love. A priceless amount every time. That's why a lot of that music I made. And that's how it was created. And that's also why it resonates with people sonically. Even if I'm not on the record, you know me, you know I dig extensively and I have a musical knowledge that exceeds many of your favorite producers. And a lot of people really really know me, they know that. So I've touched the record if I didn't touch the record. But my it's my soul. I believe you when you say, not, not to interrupt you, I believe you when you say, like, whenever... Whenever the discussion of beat making comes over you, like you got samples in the tuck, I believe you. 
You know, I mean, I was born into music. My, like you I said, born. my daddy was recording in the 40s. I better know some damn music. I better you, know you all have of it. it. You have it honest. You have it honest. Yes. And I, it's it's my passion. You know, I, I go to the record store. I was just just recently went went digging um, with a new young producer from out here out of the Bay Area. His name is Big Daddy Chop. And he MCs who he's real dope. But we went digging and we just, you know, extensively went through that whole record store and got a hell of records and you know i'm still i still have my little turntable and i'm still going through some of the stuff that i got i took about maybe 10 percent of the pile and he took like 90 percent of it because he's you know live making beats and all the time and you know i'm over here just when i when i have a moment to myself which is hardly never i sit oh. down with the koala or with one of the programs and try to you know i've made some productions and made some beats and things and you know but it's not about me especially now like you know i'm getting older and there's so many, um, so many young producers that I would like to see them shine, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm damn near 50 years old. So what's the point at this point of trying to make a name for myself in, you know, I, I want to make it when I make a production or a beat or an instrumental, first of all, I don't really want nobody to rap on it. Cause most of these people can't rap. <laughs> There's always people that can't rap that wants to rap over. They want to rap. I don't want them to. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, but I, I would want to make maybe some instrumental tapes or something like that. But it's just like how I draw. I still graffiti and black book and piece up and stuff like that. But I'm not out here trying to steal all the paint and make the biggest piece on the biggest freeways and get the most visibility and get my my tag and my name out there. I'm too old and I'm sick and I'm tired and I'm in pain and I would rather yeah. have a young person get that shine than me and, and reel them in that direction the way they yeah. can do it. Yeah. yeah yeah basically beautiful. at this point yeah so <laughs> yeah yeah we we have talks about that about uh you know yeah your 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 heart is in it but your body ain't mm -hmm. you know? yeah yeah my body's tired so i would like to sit you know i would like to sit down somewhere and do something but you know, good things, um, good things for me come all the time and blessings come all the time because all I do is give blessings and assist with people's blessings. So, of course, they come to me and, you know, I live a charmed life. I've, I mean, I've done things. I've had so many lives and done so many amazing things. That's why oftentimes people are able to write me out of history because they're like, man, that bitch lying. It's easy to say <laughs> that because it, sound, it sounds yeah. like it's not true. Yeah, especially like not to, not to go back to the song, <laughs> mad villain thing, but it's like, I done seen just about every interview with you being the subject of it. And then there's the comments box, especially mm -hmm. the one for uh for uh complex. Mm -hmm. And that was like, okay, okay. It was like one guy was giving you credit. Okay, okay. So she knew Doom and knew enough to hook mad little, but but why does she really deserve that A and R credit? You know? So it's just like, you know, when you when you have that light about you and you do what you do and you make it happen. All that all that is important is the people that witness you making it happen. Mm -hmm. Some people so deep off into the disbelief of it that, you know, they they love Doom, they love Mad Live. You know, two of the most talked about music entities of this day. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong about that. No, it's um, true. Um when when it's a third you know, a third party in certain kind of like in certain they self in the whole conversation there's like well where this person comes from you know what i'm saying what have you what have you done because you know social media and the world is so much of a 
show me what you type of field and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's some people out here who really tell the story right. And I never doubted in my mind that you were telling right side of the story because it was mm-hmm. so much it was so much it was so many people out here that was like had to deny your story, but it always <laughs> it always comes up through the underground. It was too many people. It's just like when Doom passed. It's too many people that were actually saying true things and, you know, your name is attached to a lot of the truth. So it's just like, okay, let's just sit back and watch this unfold. And I just, I would just ask questions and I appreciate you taking the time out with me and my little to just have a whole conversation. Cause I don't, I don't feel like this is an interview. I think I'm right here talking to fam, right? I mean, you know, we've developed a, a close um, bond over the years, especially over samples and digging and music. You know, you're one of the people that I that I respect the most, but also one of the main reasons why I did want to talk to you and don't call it a little podcast because it's very important, especially to have something from Mobile, Alabama. Like that's such a, you know, an important area for music just in general and black music in particular. Come and on also, with- Come on, you know, also the South, you know, the South has something to say, but like for real, like it's, you know, it's important for voices from these pockets that aren't the LA and aren't the New York and aren't the industry. And the the one thing that we didn't get to talk about was Southern music and Miami bass. And that was something that was on the list. And we have time, so we should touch on that before, (laughs) before we end. And, you know, I have, I do have, um, I do have roots in the South and the Midwest. My granny um, came by way of Italy through St. Louis and then to California. And then my other granny um, came by way of Georgia, a little outside of Atlanta um, back when she was very young. And then I had some family spend a lot of time in Florida. I lived in Georgia for a while with some members of the solar panel. And I did spend a bit of time in Georgia with Doom. And I have spent a lot of time on the scene in Miami over the years um, in different permutations. And I always, I went to Freaknik in 94. That was big shit. Um, Uh And, Uh you know, I've always been a fan of music from the South. I've always seeked it out. And especially when I was living in LA when I was young and we were dancing and doing um, a lot of activity that revolved around dance and around hip hop. You know, a lot of those early LA hip hop records, they were not danceable records. So like you had like the batter ram or you had, you mm-hmm. know, just certain stuff that was more like gangster and more affiliated. Um, that yeah. wasn't necessarily danceable. And then, and then you have the, you know, we had like the LA dream team and they used to come and DJ our school dances. And I was in dance classes at that school, at that school at LACES. And so I was pretty much like a semi-professional dancer in terms of like jazz and ballet and tap and all that kind of stuff. But then also my cousins were B-boys. And so I had picked up a lot of B-girling and a lot of um, LA styles like tutting and popping and locking and stuff. I was involved in that scene too. And just the club, the club dance scene um, in LA, I was involved in since a very, very young woman. And, you know, the real DJs, when we were there to dance, they would be bringing out like Shy D, Gotta Be Tough, or they would be bringing out 
the um two live the early two live crew records or even like that was something I experienced when I went in 94 to Atlanta for Freaknik was that um the homegirls that I was staying with, they were there um, from California, but they were living there because they were attending historical black colleges and universities. And we were just visiting from San Francisco um, just for that time during, because it was sp spring break. But I got put on to DJ Jimmy and therefore I got put on to the juvenile. Right, right, right. It, you, that DJ Jimmy, Woo! very interesting. Jimmy. Yeah, very, very interesting record because that put that whoever heard that record at that time that put them that was their gateway to like a lot of new orleans rap like just like you said you uh you got put on the dj jimmy which led you to juvenile pre-cash money oh so pre-cash money like this was <laughs> in i'm telling you this is right around the same time where i met hieroglyphics and souls of mischief so if I had not gone down there to Atlanta and stayed down there and I ended up staying extra time and living down there for a minute. And it was so funny because one of the roommates was Dinko D from Leaders of the New School. From Leaders of the New School. <laughs> one of the roommates. So if I hadn't have taken that trip, who knows, you know, musically for me, like I was very into Hyro and Hobo Junction and all the backpack shit from LA and all the backpack shit from the Bay and all the underground and everything. But I really loved Too Short and RBL Posse and The Aww. Click and E40. And so like, oh my goodness, like I love that music so much. So when I got there to Georgia, my ear was already prepared for them to play me all these DJ Jimmy records. But like, especially when I heard the answer records and there was the one with the girl and you know what I'm saying? Like, I just was like, oh, wow. I was like, this is like a battle rap with a Southern twang and with a, with a whole different, a whole different like beat count and a whole different rhythm and a whole different sound. And I could hear that voodoo in the music and I could hear the South <laughs> in it and I could hear, you know, not, That's a good not way of putting it. Yeah, it's the <laughs> way to put it. It's the only way to really explain. Like you can hear the red clay in it, and you can hear, you can hear like the, you know, it's like, it's like the um, the line that they do when someone passes on down oh, there. The second line, yeah, the yeah. Second. It's like it, it yeah. comes from, it comes from a place of pain and loss and suffering. Yep. And also it comes from opening a gate and a door and a veil between this place and the ancestors place and then enjoying the happiness. And that's the celebration and the dance and the partying and the music and the costumes and everything that comes with it is because you're celebrating this person is an ancestor now. Yes. And that's a happy thing. And that's a happy time. And that's a happy moment. And so to have a music that encompasses all of that, plus the current pain that we're all going through that we will all, we were all born into being born in the 60s, 70s and 80s and uh -huh. everything that our parents generation was going through in addition to all that ancestral stuff you know it gets it gets real heavy and so to have some music where that pain is like part of the underlying base of it and you can hear it in the drum, but then there's also these cheerful elements and an element of dance and enjoy yourself and enjoy the fact that you're alive and you're here and you're free and you have the movement 
and the love and the life and the light and everything that the ancestors are giving you to dance and to have that bounce in the music. And the first time that I heard the juvenile, that's what I heard. And I said, oh, I said, this man is like a voodoo priest. <laughs> and I fuck with this music. And still to this day, I still listen to his old stuff all the time. And we even were tweeting together, me and him and my homegirl, Savvy Fatty. We were all tweeting together recently. And he was like, okay. He was like, all right, these two like beautiful, accomplished women are fucking with my old shit. Like the first couple songs I ever made, they still listening to that shit to this day. You know, he wasn't tripping off the accolades that he's had now and all the fame and the wealth and the cash money and the this and the that. He was like, okay. He's like, yeah. He's like, they bad and they fuck with my old shit. All right. He was happy off that. <laughs> really, really deep down, guys like Juve and all those, like, I think they felt like they golden era was when they was running around in them streets like that and jumping in somebody's studio and dropping those records right there. Like when the DJ Jimmy, the, that, G, that DJ Jimmy record opened up the lane and it's like, it's a stamp. It's a, it's a signature sound that they did. Like, you know, the whole story of how, um, I had that showboys record, the drag rap, we call it trigger man. Mm -hmm. Um, how high it traveled, it hit it hit in Memphis first, and then it it just an old it was just an old New York record, <laughs> New York record from '86. <laughs> it didn't blow up in New York, but somebody for you know how can I explain it? A record like that drifts, and it'll live in the it it'll live in the South because it was somebody's uncle or somebody that used to be a DJ or somebody <laughs> who just had the record yeah. and that's that whole that's that old house system that old house system where there's a bunch of records down there you know nobody listens to records in the house but there's records in the house <laughs> that record is there yes well somehow somebody picked it up and listened to it always oh, a rap record and then they hit and then on on the B side that's the instrumental then somebody gets the gumption to rap over it and that's how it happened. That's how it happened for folks in uh, New Orleans. It became it became like their breakbeat. It became like their impeach the president. And once somebody put it in the mix of whatever they was doing, you had to rap over it then. And then it got more creative once, you know, the DJ element. That's one thing about New Orleans music. They always had a DJ element attached attached to it whether it would be with a rapper or not you already had to call and response and stuff and just like you said earlier once the the dj jimmy record the the way they at that was a whole thing came out like that all right t uh t tucker dj jubilee they had the very first one yeah but it was it's like a live yeah yeah it was a live it was a live record mm -hmm. that you know uh that they Somebody taped it at a club and mm -hmm. they passed it out in the streets and stuff. And then somebody thought, somebody thought, yo, this could be a way better record if we add, if we add actually made it into a song. That's where the DJ Jimmy comes in at. And then everybody had an answer record. It was like 20 answer records coming out within two years after that record. <laughs> but it was fun because everybody came out and did something with it the same elements of the record it was kind of like how you would use break beats how new york people would use break beats and stuff you know you recognize the drums you might you might hear a james brown 
type of thing in there, but that was what that's what that's what New Orleans was. So for a lot of us, you know. Well, it is like that. And then that's where it's a trip because you mentioned the call and response, which also happened in the Bronx where they used to have those chants and like Zulu Gestapo and they Zulu had Gestapo. break beats and they had the gatherings and they had everything. So that's the same, whether you argue that it's New York based or when you think about the roots and reggae and the Caribbean and the Jamaican influence of chat and call and response and, and the rhythm having the same beat that's used a bunch of different times over and over and through generations, like the movie star rhythm in Jamaican roots music that kept coming around and it's still being made. It was made into dance hall in the dance hall era. And now it's still uh -huh. re coming back around with records, even to this day of people who are doing like whatever reggae is called nowadays, or, you know, whatever the, the mainstream version of it, it's still right. back to the same exact rhythm. And so with the new Orleans music, that was also the exact same thing that was happening. So in a way, that was more purely like the roots and origins of hip hop than New York or LA music. Let's keep it a buck because yeah. it was exactly like, exactly like the process with the Jamaican roots music and the chatting and the calling and response and the toasting and how it got here and how it kind of evolved into something, but it's also still its own thing. And that's really what those records that came out of the deep South. And then you have something kind of different happening in Atlanta and in Georgia because you had more of a music industry. And so there were different, the reasons people were making music was a little bit different and the purpose of the records was a little bit different. And then there started to be labels and it kind of became a third coast, but that's just Atlanta. And that's totally yeah. different from what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is like you said, it started out as a live record that someone taped at a club. And then, you know, it went on from there. And then Jubilee made it a song from that way, but it was recorded music. So it had yeah. gone from something that happens at a house party or a backyard party or a concert or some kind of um, live event. And then someone recorded it and it became a song that way. But like you said, it all really started out as a breakbeat record. But then there's always been the bounce added to it. And if you want to go even further... Mm. <coughs> excuse me go-go mm -hmm. go-go music and all the music that came out of what people consider dc is another part of that second diaspora if you will that happened in the united states where people from the south went other places and a lot of people from the south went to los angeles that was a big thing you, and a you, lot of people from the south went up north and they ended up in where? Virginia, Baltimore, and DC. The Carolinas. Yo. And the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. And so the music, particularly the music from Virginia, even to this day, things that Pharrell done or Neptunes did or yep. um, even Clips, it has those elements that some people think it sounds East Coast, maybe because of the accent, but it has those elements of Southern music and especially with gogo -Go, when i hear gogo -Go records i hear the new orleans influence the bounce influence I, that's what i hear and i hear something that they took and made into with a different percussion it's always about the different percussion 
that's what makes that sound go-go. That's what makes it a DC or that area, the, the that um, DMC, what do they call it? DMV, the DMV. The DMV. Yeah. yeah. The DMV yeah, music. Yeah. For the most part, it's traditionally not shit that sounds like the clips. For the most part, especially in music from Baltimore, has a whole other a little a whole other different rhythm and different sound to it, but you can hear the southernness of it even in the Baltimore house. Right. And so there's so many different ways that music grew organically. I call it concentric circles of civilization because these things were happening. Like we had electro music in LA with Egyptian Lover and Arabian Prince and That's, that was a those are two these, names right there. Man, yeah. and they weren't necessarily checking for the electro scene in New York. They weren't we weren't getting all those New York records. We were getting like right. major hip hop records and some major R and B records from New York, but we weren't getting the deep scene records. We weren't getting house music from Brooklyn and electro from the Bronx for the most part. I mean, we have probably had Trans Europe Express the same as Bambada's did or whatever. You know what I'm saying? But those records, the LA electro records, are very different, and they stand up to this day. I listen to Egyptian Lover all the time. I listen to, you know, I listen to those records like they just came out last Friday. And part of it is how danceable they are. And part of it is that bit of it that comes from that same ancestral place where you could still hear it and you could still feel it, even though it was digitally made and even though it was called electro music. That was one of the last eras of music that had that pop and that organic, and I mean the pop of a vinyl record, and it had that organic and that dust to it. It still had, it still had ancestral elements in the recorded music. And now that's tough to do. That's tough to do to make that happen. That's tough. And that's something that most people nowadays, that's what's missing from their music. And that's why it doesn't really hit. It doesn't really hit if the beat is made entirely digitally, has no analog aspect, isn't even made from an actual vinyl record, has no live instrumentation to it. And then when you add the rap to it, the rap doesn't have that soul and it doesn't have that. No, no ancestor is talking through a lot of these rappers mouth. Oh, you just gave me a lot of a hella insight to that. It's the process of those records that were being made like say for instance it's people who who are above our age like say about another five or six years older than us um egyptian lover still gets played down here (laughs) you know the group you know you you know but here in mobile you know what type of party you at and what the age group is by a certain record you play if 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 uh, egyptian lover egypt egypt yeah, you up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, we have to remember I was a child listening to those records because I, I shouldn't have been listening to them, but I was. And so, yes, the older, like, like a five, five to ten years older than us is the ones who typically would still be playing, uh, still be playing that music. But I mean, I listen to, you know, I Need a Freak and Dial a Freak and those records all the time. Like I listen yeah. to them like they're brand new because they're so hard they sound so good in headphones they sound so good on speakers they're so danceable and it doesn't matter and that's exactly like you said it's the way the music was made because it doesn't matter what they're saying on those records because it's maybe not, maybe it's not that deep 
what they're saying. But it, it is more call and response and it is more something simple that's more like, why do they have why do they have nursery rhymes? And why do you do call and response with little babies and children? Yeah. It's partially to teach them the language and sound, but part of it is to, because those, when you say call and response, it's not just the call. It's not just the response. So if the parent is, is going back and forth, if you will, with the new baby, what does the new baby have? The new baby has the most pure ties to the ancestor. Yep. Yep. You're surely right right about that and, and it's 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 uh the uh reflex of memory is all that it's all it's more like a game as as the child gets old mm-hmm. as the child gets older too mm-hmm. it starts it starts with the dancing and then later on maybe maybe with the rap it is and the package Exactly. And you can tell when two parents are around, whether they're together or not, you can tell when two parents have that input and they're playing that music in the house. And you can tell that, what? oh, who's that little young girl who recently came out rapping and her daddy does all the videos? Van Van. Her name is Van Van. Her name is Van Van. Okay. You've seen her, her little videos online, right? Of her rapping and dancing. I had to. Yeah, of course. And so that's the thing. You can tell that Van Van A has an old soul and you can tell that Van Van's daddy and mama and aunties and uncles have been playing that music in that house since she was in the stomach of the mother. Yeah. She has it. It's in her. It's in her and it's on her. You can't take that (laughs) off of Van Van. (laughs) <laughs> now, whether she grows up and it gets less pure to her or they try to commodify her or whatever, but right now she has got it. And Aww. that's the thing that we have to remember about youth is we can't heavily critique the way they're doing what they're doing. And it's so digital and often it's so soulless. We can't just turn our back on that. We have no, to, we no, have to turn forward to it and be like, okay, well, listen to this record and listen to this vinyl and listen to this old music and let's go watch this movie because this soundtrack and this score and let's get them around these sounds because they hearken to it. They really, really hearken to it. They really do. And a lot of times it's just that people are like, ah, and I can't, I can't with these kids. And then they just kind of turn their back and yeah, they turn, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they let they, they let their age dictate what it is just because it don't sound what one thing i find about the kids these days is that these old records that we're talking about is totally new to them mm-hmm. and they're gonna they're gonna dip into it they're gonna dip their finger into that just like we did when you know when like when snoop drop or when dr dre dropped the chronic and stuff or when we got into more into the lexicon and the vocabulary of of this magic because making the the uh the music sound like that was still a mystery to us in our teens and we wanted you know some of us ventured out into trying to find that perfect beat oh absolutely definitely yeah and also that's that same thing in that era i listened so heavily to x clan and epmd and those records because 
I grew up in LA, the, the daughter of a jazz musician and someone who played with a lot of different kinds of bands. And I grew up my older cousins or just K-Day LA in general, 1580 or whatever, or parties that I would be around or parties of aunties and uncles and friends and their parents. And it would be funk, so many funk records that I knew that some of them, my daddy played on those records, or I was at studio sessions when those people were recording some of that music. And so when I heard people rapping on it, of course, to me, it really, really hit Parliament and Funkadelic and, you know, any of those kind of samples, it hit me hard because I knew the original music. And that's the thing is if we never teach the youth any of the original music, that's why when I've been around these younger 20 somethings now, I'm mostly playing stuff from 88 to 94. Uh-huh. And not just rap, but like soul and R&B guy and Phyllis Hyman and Mary Jane girls. And, you know, cause, cause that for them is like the bridge to get to the older music. Oh, right. right. Cause it's before they were alive. We're old yes. before they were alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We told you, we should, you, you playing them the jams. That's the jams, exactly. The Mary Jane girls, the uh, the uh, the Angela Angela Winbush, yes, the Rick James, yeah, all of that, and Zap. Like when I when I play oh, Zap for some tw- young twenty somethings, they're like, wait, hold on a second, deep Zap cuts, because they might have heard Computer Love or they might have heard More Bounce, but like, do you really want to answer or something like that when I play that? They're like, wait, hold on, run, run that back. I want to run that back. Run that back. Run that back a bunch of times, and now they want to make a beat off of it, and that's what I that's what I want. That you love to see it. You love yeah. to see it, and so yeah. I have to be a little bit, you know, stuck in the past in a way. And and there's nothing wrong with being stuck in the past, and you know you can observe what's new going on today, but it's just like. You can sniff out the difference. It's just like, it's just like what you said. A lot of stuff being recorded today, it doesn't smack like that old stuff because, like, due to the way it's recorded, due to the way it's processed, you know, it, yeah, it sounds good. It sounds good. I mean, I always go back to Dr. Dre the Chronic as an album that stands the test of time as far as sounding so clean in the mix and the way it was engineered. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And also the fact that he used all those live studio players on instrumentation. Yes. And yes. the vo- and the voices, the voices, come on, like Jewel and Nate Dog, And, you know, that's real singing. That's not that yes. bullshit. That's not that auto-tune. You know, they had real musicianship up on those records. Uh-huh. Like they, they, they erase, they erase bad takes and it's like, you know, it was a whole, mm-hmm. it was a whole new era when, when Dre came with the death row and all that. It, it, he revolutionized stuff. Like even the little whiny sign wave thing that he did, like on, on nothing, nothing but the G thing, how many other records came mm-hmm. out with mm-hmm. that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So everybody was chasing kind of like was chasing the ghost or just studied just studied the chronic like that and that changed 
a way of doing doing music how it's supposed to sound. It didn't sound it didn't sound like no other rap record came out sounding like you recorded in the basement. That's true. You're absolutely right about that. And I think that people went in the wrong direction with that and they went to digital. And that's why, you know, I tried to impress upon some of the younger people that I work with, like, don't only just use your laptop. Koala cool. Don't only just use your phone. Um, Some of the, you know, some of the um, machines that you're using are, are really dope, but also like get a keyboard, get an old ASR or get a Moog or get something or even use the keyboard function on those digital things that you're using, but teach yeah. yourself how to play some keys. Or if you really, if you're really nice on the pads and you're really nice at programming drums, get a drum set, play some damn drums. Like yeah. even if it's one of those ones that you plug up and you, you know, a, a, a electric little, one or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the little rolling. Yeah. yeah. Even that, you know, because my mother was a drummer and um, she stopped recording music when we were, you know, when I was born and then she had my brother. And But, you know, she was real nice. She was real nice on the drums, jazz and rock. Um, and so, like, I grew up with, like, okay, my father's over there playing the bass and he could play all different kind of bass, whether it was electric or upright and all these other instruments. And then my mom was nice on drums and she had her whole drum set and drum kit. And so, you know, that was a thing for me too. Like, for music to really hit it was all about drums and it still to me is all about drums and that could take us back to the beginning <laughs> of this conversation and we could talk about drumless beats for another hour but for me it's all about <laughs> it's all about drums and not just a drum machine but also like a, a real you know a real drum can blow your mind and it doesn't even have to be like an american drum set but every culture and all over the world has some form of drum and so if you can tap into that whether it comes from your heritage or your ancestry or whatever or where you're from or even if you just pick up one from different places and you know i'm into i'm into producers and production who branch out and teach themselves keys and want to learn and want to play drums and really you know get into the instrumentation of it and i think that's where we're at with it now is that we need to go um we need to take and explore that further and more people who want to be involved in hip hop need to go in the direction of learning to play an instrument and really fine tuning um, their instrumentation and their musical ability and their musicology so that if hip hop is really their goal and it's really what they want to do, great. Then you can play the keys on all of the records that are getting produced and you'll be that one that people go to for keys on that. And, you know, you not everybody has to rap. Oh, my God. And not everybody has to <laughs> make a beat with the machine. Like, there's so many other things that you can do musically and still contribute to this. And that's what's really missing. And so I think if some of the younger people will pick up instruments more um, practice with their singing voices and get, um, you know, do vocal rehearsals and get a, vo- a voice coach and really explore their voice as an instrument, not just for talking and rapping, but also for singing and harmonizing. And, you know, there's so much music that can't, it's very difficult for it to be recreated now because those soulful roots and those gospel roots are really like, I don't really know that many young people that came up singing in a choir nowadays and that's sad seriously though because we were just talking about Joel and and nate dog being being the singers in the whole death row 
dog pound, that type of thing. And, that's and they got, they got, they have that church background, you mm-hmm. know, they start off singing in the church and mm-hmm. then, you know, it kept on going with it. Yeah, you don't see it. it it's just like you bumping the rap, you bumping the more rappers today than anything because <laughs> it's the easiest thing. It's the easy thing to do. It's the easy route. And, mm-hmm. you know, folks look at, folks look at the rapper and the stardom and all that, but we really need some players out here. Really, nothing, very serious. Uh, 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 nothing beats a good uh, drummer, like you said, uh, Chris drums. Somebody who plays, somebody who's just a, a virtuoso on yes. on the keys. It, because we still out here looking. For, it, it's still some producers out here who look for real players that you know that they can play. That can play on the record. Nothing, nothing ever beats, nothing ever really beats that sound. And then you want to refresh, you want to refresh it ever so often, in my, my, my opinion. I agree. And I, I hope that that's the direction that good music goes. Because there's always been pop music and there's always been music that's really not good. And that's fine because it's a product of the industry and it's a product of trying to make money out of it and trying to commodify it and that's that's fine but they can do that over there i want there to still be that that creativity and i want young people to know that like this is really hard work this is a life path this is not like some simple stuff that you can turn on your computer and make a little thing and and you know that's part of it too nowadays is that anybody can make a song i have a laptop right and i'm talking on the podcasting microphone right now when we end this podcast technically i could make a song you could song after this both of us can make a song after this. with this equipment <laughs> we could you know we could easily come together and make a song but you know um, it might not be the best song just because we just because you <laughs> just because Great you point. can doesn't Great. mean you should. Just that, because a, you can doesn't mean doesn't you mean should. you should. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point right there because there are people who feel that they can a song in five minutes. I mean, they you can do that, but should you be doing that? Should you be doing it? There's there's people who can whip up a macaroni and cheese in five minutes. But now, should you be doing that? <laughs> that doesn't be not make it good. And should you be doing that? And the answer is no. You no. should not. <laughs> well, 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 Asia, we've come to yes. that time. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. We're gonna All wrap right. this up. I I truly appreciate you for taking time out to be on the podcast i can I, i'm gonna i'm gonna hang this over folks here it's like bragging rights like yeah <laughs> i got I, this the one this the one i've been waiting on right here <laughs> well i'm very glad that we made it happen and i hope that people will really listen to some of the topics that we covered because we went in depth and we talked about really truly like the roots of music and i think that we went way more deeper into that than any podcast i've heard lately so i would hope that people will really take the time to listen to what was said and also to think about some of the things that we're talking about about the future of music and it's been an honor and a privilege i've been so excited to to do this one and um yeah i can't wait for people to hear it and for us to continue um you know to dig together and find new old music because that's what i love and i know that's what you love and 
that's our that's our jam. Let's find some sure. great new old music. Maybe for tonight. Sure. For sure. Um I'm gonna shout out I'm gonna shout out uh Noah the Flood and Architect. They got they got some of my favorite projects of the last five years. That true life mathematics parts one and two. Uh, uh you put me on. You put me on Thank to you. him. They are working on a part three and it's yeah, the their music together as them as a group is hard and flood has some new projects coming and yeah his music is I, I you know i love his i love his stuff and part of that is that dallas the dallas in his voice and the dallas in his right, experience it right, makes it a little right. different you know it makes it a little different no doubt no doubt uh and then he hooked up with like one legendary uh west coast producer in the architect it's an incredible combination absolutely yeah, the, uh, I mean, it, it, it bears it bears great fruit. Um, I'm there along with the ride. Uh, we gonna connect more. That's all I could say. We gonna connect. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, on behalf of Wallasia, um, this is fresh on my fresh podcast. Like, this is probably I'm 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 a I'm a craft at this because this is like the greatest episode ever. <laughs> fresh on my fresh. Learn about it. Ask about it. Oh, for sure. And for everybody who wants to uh who wants to shoot me the donations, um do it to um uh, enroll enroll your child in um uh, hstats.com. You already I already spoke on it earlier. Uh kids can learn coding, kids could learn how to paint, how to draw, animation, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and it's all done at the shops at Bel Air Mall. Mobile, Alabama. It's right next to Belk. Uh, if you, for all my gamers out there who used to go to uh bad bad bitches, bad bitches back in the day, um, that's where the House of Eight Stacks is now. Uh, he's got a Patreon, but hit up, hit up. Uh, it's a lot of artists. It's the only artist depot and display for um for this part of Mobile, Alabama. Not the Arts Council. We ain't we ain't got no beef with them or the modern the mobile museum of art but this is one place that is black owned and it needs y'all support uh com. you could get all your information there and roll and roll your child uh, and display some of that art take some of that finished art up there it's only like maybe a hundred dollars a year that's it and also Whatever Wallaja supports is gonna be dope and you should support that too. So uh to everybody, peace. Peace. Good night. Good night.